Good morning. It, it really is a joy this morning to have Pete and Jenny uh, with us. Uh, Pete and I have worked together and been friends for over 30 years, believe it or not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By the way, just to, just to help you, in, in when we served together in the church, he was known as Pete and I was known as Peter, being the more mature one amongst us. So, uh, but it is, it, is, it is great to have Pete and Jenny with us this morning. Some of you may not be aware, Pete, Pete is from Christ Church, and Christ Church is the church that, that planted out this church. So our roots go back into, into Pete and Christ Church, so we're so grateful for him. I want to say for me personally, I don't think I've learned more about grace than anybody, more than I've learned from him. He has taught me grace, and he's shown me grace. And if you've worked with me, you'll know why somebody had to show grace. But it's, it, it really has been um, a wonderful journey, and we're so grateful. I am, I am thrilled you're here this morning. Uh, I woke up this morning really, really excited that you, and particularly Jenny, would be here as well, that, uh, so we would see you. So we're going to pray for you now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity we have this morning for Pete to come amongst us to share your word. Thank you, Lord, for his example, his gifting, what he means to many of us in this room this morning. And Father, we pray that as he brings your word this morning, you will bless him, but Lord, you'll bless all of us as hearers this morning. Would you bless the preaching of the word? And Father, would you bless the hearing of the word? May we all receive a deposit from you through the preaching of the word this morning that causes us to love Jesus more and increase our faith and our trust in him. So Father, thank you for this opportunity to listen and hear from Pete this morning. Bless him as he comes to preach now. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. It is so good to see old friends and uh, new faces as well that I don't know. Thank you. It's, it's, it really is a joy to be here with you. And uh, I hope to serve you well. Thank you for the kind things you said. It has been a joy. And we're still here. How you're still here, I have no... <coughs> honestly, I have no idea. <coughs> I'm going to leave that there and come back to that. Um, but I bring you the greetings of Christchurch. And they, I'm totally not needed there anymore. It's, you know, I haven't been for weeks because I've had this COVID thing. And no one's even realized that we haven't been there. <laughs> so that's how he, what if my dad used to say, stick it, make a fist, stick your hand into a bucket of water, pull it out, see the size of the hole that's left. That's how important you are, son. <laughs> um, and he wasn't wrong. So I'm going to switch this on so I know how long I've been going. It only works in hours, I'm afraid, so. <laughs> and I'm going to put that there and hope not to tread on it. <clears throat> it really is a pleasure to be with you, and I want to get straight into the Word to be able to serve you well. Um, so if you have a Bible, would you be kind enough, please, to turn to Luke chapter 22? It's a familiar passage of Scripture, and I'm sure you know the story well. But I hope this morning that uh, it can serve you as we look into it. It's Peter's denial of Jesus in verse 54. 
And we're going to open up this little bit together. <clears throat> it says, Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. <clears throat> um, I want to talk to you this morning about what I think is probably your biggest problem, whether you know it or not. If I were to say to you, what is your biggest problem? You might say it could be health, it could be money, it could be the kids could be uh, the job, it could be whatever. I want to talk to you about what I think is the biggest challenge to all of us, and that's shame. So if you want a title, I think we're calling it No Longer Ashamed. But shame can define us. Shame can drive us to be the kind of people we are, to do the kind of things we do. And there are many examples in Scripture of shame, but this really is the most well-known, I guess, or one of the most well-knowns. So what I want to do this morning, if I can, is, is define shame. So just look at what does it mean, explain it a bit, and then at the end we're going to look at the answer to shame. Okay? It's not complicated, but it's great. Because you know what the answer is before I get there, but it's going to be great. <clears throat> but firstly, let's just realize what this thing is. What happened here? Look at this, seeing him in the light and looking closely at him. This is one of the girls, but that's, that's life, isn't it? That's the one thing I never want to happen to me. Seeing Pete Greasley in the light and closely looking at him is just, please don't shine a light, because I know who I am. And that's what's taking place here. All he is, three and a half years, all he is, all he's said, all that he's lived for, all that he's done, in a moment, it's gone. It's gone in a moment. Three and a half years as the main man with the Son of God on earth, and in a moment, he's blown it all. He's denied him. It's denial. It's betrayal. It's rejection. It's lies. <clears throat> In a moment. In Mark's, <clears throat> in Mark's gospel, which is Peter's translation, Peter talking about himself in Peter's account, it says he actually calls down curses upon himself should he be lying. 
If I'm lying, let this happen to me. Let me be cursed. Uh, it, he said he swore oaths to them that he didn't know Jesus. It, this guy has gone from, from being at the top to being the worst of all. It's just absolute horror. So, result, this last verse, he went out and wept bitterly. Why? Shame. Shame. How he must have felt. Let me define shame for you, as opposed to guilt. <clears throat> guilt, guilt is feeling bad. This is simplistic, but it's true. Guilt is feeling bad for what I've done wrong. So if I've done something wrong, I think I shouldn't have done that. That's guilt. Shame is feeling bad for who I am. And that's the bigger issue that we all deal with. Shame is different and far more powerful than guilt. As a Christian, we know Jesus died for our sins. We sing it all the time. We believe that. We believe that if we confess our sins, he's faithful, and therefore he forgives us our sins. We see it throughout the scripture. That sin is forgiven. He no longer brings it up. But shame, shame is, but I'm still the kind of person that did that, or said that, or thought that, or didn't do that, or didn't say that, didn't think it. I'm still that kind of person. We can go where Micah 7.19 says, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Or we might remember, remind ourselves, as far as the east is to the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But, but even though my sin may be forgiven, I still did that. That's still me. I think of it like this. I think, you know, so... It, if you cast the sins into the sea, like casting a rock into the sea, into the depths of the sea, never to be seen anymore, um, <clears throat> it's like that sin, I, I confess it and Jesus takes it and that's it, he's never going to bring it up again. We know that. But the stain of where that sin is, it's almost like a rock in a sheet. And we come and we confess and Jesus takes the rock and it's because of his cross, because of his blood, he's forgiven our sins. But the sheet where the rock was, still has a stain on it. So what do we do with the sheet? We crumple it up and we put it into our shame container. We call it that. Open the lid, cram it in, hope nobody's looking while we do it. Close the lid again. It's a metaphor, but it's true. And within us, my sins are forgiven, and I'll stand on Sunday and say, my sins are forgiven but don't open the lid. Don't open that lid. Why? That's what causes me to feel ashamed, the place where the rock was. And every time we sin, we put in a new sheet, and we do it quickly. We see the old sheets trying to get out, and it's a continual reminder of who I am. My identity comes from these defining memories. <clears throat> I have so many, so often. And I'm sure you do as well. Two things about shame we need to know. This is important. Firstly, it's not always linked to your own sin or failures or mistakes or weaknesses. You can feel shame for things done 
to you, not just what you've done, um, said to you, placed upon you by another. We see this throughout the Psalms with David, where <clears throat> he says, you know, I, I haven't done anything here, but, but the, the shame he feels by, the, by what's being said to him or what's taking place or what's messed up. We see it throughout my mother. I had a mother who was an unusual lady. I don't mean to speak ill of my mother. She's, she's no longer with us. She said some pretty awful things to me. If you wonder why I'm a bit messed up, those who knew my mother know. I mean, it's like, you're the worst child I've ever met in my life. You know, why can't you just be like anybody else? Now, it was probably true, but she said some awful things to me, and it starts to put a shame within you. Do you remember what Cliff Richard went through when he was accused of, uh, of all that stuff? And he said he nearly got to the end of himself. He felt ashamed, but he felt ashamed for something, in fact, that he hadn't done at all. Um, and that links into accusation. So accusations, true or false, create shame. They, they, an accusation almost rips the top off the container. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where maybe you've been in work or relationally or something where an accusation has come against you, it may be true, but it may be false. But you would know, even if it's a false accusation, maybe you're a teacher or you work in health or something, and somebody's saying, you did this, you, you said that, and suddenly there's this utter shame because the accusation comes and you're saying, but, but that wasn't me and I didn't do that. <clears throat> the problem with an accusation that causes us to feel shame is that even though the accusation may be false, you know within your container there are enough things in there that even though that accusation may be false, I'm still aware of who I am. I'm aware of the things I've done wrong. I'm aware of the things I haven't done. I'm aware of the things I've thought and said. We see this throughout Scripture. It's the horror of nakedness, of being exposed. We see it in Genesis right at the beginning. Adam and Eve, they were naked and what? Ashamed. Because they were exposed for who they are. And it's a reality and, and we are continually accused. Who accuses us? Satan accuses us. He's the accuser of the brethren. What does he love to do? He's not trying to give you a flat tire or, you know, oh, Satan's after me. No. He just wants to whisper and remind you, my sins are forgiven. Yeah, but you're still that kind of person. Um, others, Paul lived with this, continually being accused, shame trying to be put on him. We find it throughout his letters. Ourselves, the scripture says, when our hearts condemn us, my heart condemns me because I know who I am. An accusation can turn shame into crippling anxiety. Examples of it, then we're going to get onto the answers. <clears throat> There's 10,000. 10,000 examples of what will they think of me and what do I think of me. Um, missing the penalty in a cup competition. Missing the party because I have nothing to wear. I'm embarrassed about how I look. Standing on the scales at Weight Watchers after a week of binge eating. Never go to Weight Watchers. Not going to get your A-level results in person because you know what they're going to look like. 
Somebody turns up at your house and it's apologies for the mess or apologies for the meal or apologies for the inconvenience or apologies. Why? Shame is driving it. The parent whose child has rejected everything. The wife whose husband has left her for another. The shame. The fear of a work assessment. The, the unmarried person who always wanted to be married but they're of an age where they don't think they ever will be and they say, what was wrong with me? Nothing. The old man who needs to be taken to the toilet in a chair. It's coming. <laughs> For me, probably, before you. The pregnant, unmarried mother. The mum who feels she's doing it all wrong. The Christian who's necessarily on antidepressants. The man in his 50s with mental illness, the girl with cuts all down her arm and is struggling to eat. It's all shame-driven. It's not what I've done wrong. It's who I perceive myself to be and who others perceive me to be. We find Peter here suddenly seeing who he is and he doesn't just fall a little, he just goes the whole hog. He's bitterly broken. Bitterly broken. And whether we're aware of it or not, it lives in us. We use mechanisms to subdue it. Peter ran away. Interesting. That's what we do. We fight, fight or flight. We run and hide away. Genesis 3, what happens when they're ashamed? They hid from the Lord. Quit job, leave partner, abandon family, quit school, quit college, leave a church, pull away from friends, become a recluse, stay quiet, say too much, move away, take the tablets, fix the rope. I know people who have killed themselves through shame. Judas was one such who killed himself through shame, and I know people who have done it. David knew this in Psalm 55. The whole psalm is about the shame he feels through the accusations. What does he say in it? Oh, for the wings of a dove that I might fly away. You might know the song, Oh, for the wings. If there's ever the wrong tune for some words, that's it. Because it's a crying out. I, I, have you ever been? I've, I have felt that. Because of shame, I have wanted to run away and hide away and, and just be anywhere else but here. I've often said, and Jen and I, we've talked about this a lot, shame is worse than death sometimes. People say, why? And we've had people take their lives in the church. Why do people take their lives? Did they want to die? No, they didn't want to die. Somebody once described it as being like the Twin Towers when they were on fire. And the people jumping from the Twin Towers, they jumped from the tower, not because they wanted to die, they jumped from the t because the pain of the fire was too much. Um, the shame is too much, so I have to get rid of it. And for some people, that's the one thing. So you run or hide away. You transfer the blame. Genesis 3 again. I'm naked. I'm ashamed. 
And Adam says to God, she did it. And then he says, and you gave her to me. So there's two people responsible for my sin here, and neither of them are me, and responsible for the shame that I'm feeling. So he turns to the woman, she says, what about you? And she says, the serpent did it. We transfer it because it's, it's easy. When my shame container is exposed, one of the things I can do rather than running away is try and get to open somebody else's. So therefore, the attention's taken away from me and put onto you. That's you. Look, ooh, look in there. And that's what we do. We blame others. We accuse others. We shift the focus. We use distraction, sport, alcohol, drugs, cutting yourself, overcompensation. Let me show you how great I can be. There's a whole stack of things. The problem is none of them work. They just don't work. So what is the answer? Halfway through. What is the answer? I got five things, and they're all Jesus. They're just all Jesus. Oh, folks, if you can get this, if you can hear this, if you're prepared to go, I'm aware of how that works in my life. I'm aware of what I do with that. I'm aware of the things that make me feel accused. I'm aware of when I think about myself, this is how I think. I have got good news for you today. So firstly, the look of Jesus. In Luke 22 here. <clears throat> so he's curled down curses upon himself. He's sworn oaths. He's betrayed, denied. He has done everything Jesus said he would. And in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Here's the question. What was the look? What was the look? Anger? Disappointment? No, he knew he was going to do it. Shock? <gasps> I think there's only one look when Peter has got to the worst place of all. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter with love. Just like you would your child. He looks at him with love. He knew when he called him, this would happen. For three and a half years, he knew this was going to happen. The point is this. <clears throat> when I see who I am, I have this anticipation of God having to turn his nose up at me, being continually disappointed or shocked or, or angry. How does God see me in my worst moments, in my greatest shame, when I consider myself, Jesus looks at me with love, with affectionate, warm, genuine love. That look could have been nothing else, and he remembered. Ran away bitter, but Jesus doesn't look that. And not just that, the response of Jesus. John chapter 21. Let me read that. So we're going to have to whip around just a little bit here. You know the story. Jesus is risen from the dead. 
He's uh, the disciples. He's appeared to them once in the room where Thomas wasn't there. <clears throat> Went together. And then they're, they're out fishing again. And as they're out fishing again, they see him. And they don't recognize him. And he says to them, throw the net on the other side of the boat. And they haul in a great load of fish. And Peter jumps out of the boat and starts legging it. It's weird. It says he puts his, because he's naked, so he puts his top on and then go. You would think you'd take it off if you jump. Anyway. Anyway, he jumps into the water. He's after Jesus. And then we find this back and forth with Jesus when he's got Peter on his own. And when they finish breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And you know the story. Three times Jesus says to him, do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. The response of Jesus to betrayal, denial, calling down curses upon himself, to a man who is completely messed up, totally. Totally messed up. And he takes him back to that first day. Remember the first day? Peter meets him. And he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And he tells them to put the, to go into the deep and, and, and put the net on the other side, and they pull it all in. And what's happening here today for Peter is this. Peter, I knew this from the beginning. Let's go back to that day again. Now let me ask you again. Will you follow me? Do you love me? You know I do. Then it's gone. Not just the guilt, but the shame of who you are. He does this to us every day. He wipes out the past and starts again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. New every morning. This is, this is Jesus saying, I know we've had three and a half years and you've blown it all at the end and this is who you are. Let's go back. I looked at you and I loved you. I told you it would happen. I still love you. I'm still going to use you. And I'm never going to bring it up again. This would have been the first time Peter got chance to be with Jesus since that moment on his own. Why do you think he jumped out the boat? I think shame made him jump out the boat. He was desperate to say, will you still accept me? You know, it's like, come on, boys, not you. So he jumps out, and Jesus just restores him. Never spoken of again. That moment alone says, give me your shame. Let's get rid of it. Thirdly, the payment of Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising, which means literally taking, embracing, and not, not being, being prepared to not just take our sin, but shame. Oh, oh, let's get this. He doesn't just die for your sin. He doesn't die just for the rocks that are cast into the sea. 
He dies for your very identity, for the sheets that they're kept in. He takes our shame as well as our sin. You know, there's no loincloth on the cross. We all have the pictures of Jesus in our minds with a loincloth. The whole point of Roman crucifixion was to create shame. Jesus was naked, hanging on a tree, as Adam had been prior to the fall. Adam is covering up his shame and his nakedness. Jesus' shame and nakedness is exposed. Why? Because it's yours on that cross with him. It's yours. And he's embracing it all. The last Adam was as naked as the first. He didn't just come to carry your sin. He who knew no sin became sin and shame. Fourth, the promises of Jesus. Oh, I, I don't have time. One of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible is 1 John 1, verse 9. You know it. I mentioned it earlier. If we say we have no sins, we're a liar because, you know, of course we sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean he makes us perfect suddenly. He sees us in that way. It means he deals with the shame, the sin, and he deals with the shame. He cleanses us from unrighteousness. That's what this means. It means that I am no longer, through Christ, the kind of person that did that, said that, thought that, didn't do it. I am not just forgiven, I'm washed, I'm cleansed. That, that word cleanse is katharizo, and it, it, it means literally to become unstained, to become purified. He forgives our sins and purifies us, makes us unstained in our soul. So when our hearts condemn us, 1 John 3 verse 20 says, yet God is greater than our hearts. Um, cleansed of all unrighteousness. Empties the shame container. The me I was is not the me I am now. 1 Peter 2, 6. Whoever believes in him is no longer put to shame. Hebrews 8, 12. He remembers our sins no more. He remembers it no more. You know, yeah, I've... Another one to cast into the sea? He remembers our Hebrews 2.11. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. He has no shame towards us. This is such good news. He, he looks at us with love. He responds to us by saying, just repeat Peter here, do you still love me? Yeah. It's always new every morning. He pays not just for our sin, but for our shame and his nakedness on the cross. He promises us that he will not just forgive us, but cleanse us and make us new. New. I mean, how could you have done that? In one sense, the me that did that is not the me now. 
Why? For he has cleansed me, purified me from all unrighteousness. Does that mean you're perfect now? No. But this is who I have to run to. Finally, the anticipation of Jesus on that day. Let's read a few more. 1 John chapter 2. And in verse 28, this is it. And now, little children, John says, abide in him so that when he appears, what are you anticipating before we read any more? This is how I think. Honestly, we're all the same. I've been around this too long now. I think that when I stand before him, He's probably going to empty my shame container. He'll tell me it's forgiven, you know, covered by the blood of Jesus, but the shame of all the stuff that Jesus' blood has got to cover. The disappointment on that day. Grace, but disappointment. Look at what it says here. I mean, honestly. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears on that day, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices which is trusting him has been born of him. No need to shrink in shame when he comes for you. Oh, there's so much I'd love to say here. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, Paul says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, he's talking about the end time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Oh, no and would disclose the purposes of the heart, oh no, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Is that what you expect? Have you heard, I, you may have heard preachers say this. I think I may have said it. If I have, forgive me. I haven't said it. Peace probably said it. <laughs> you, you haven't, I don't think this idea that, well, on that day, on that day when we show the video, not only of your life, but of your thoughts, when all of the universe can see just who you really are, on that day, won't it be good that Jesus died for us? You think, I'll take oblivion. That's not what's going to happen. When the secrets of things that are hidden in darkness in the depths of your souls that create the shame are exposed. All that's taken out of there are clean things. All the things where God said, well done, good and faithful servant. All the struggles with the sin you might have troubled and not the ones that you messed up with. It's like, let's take a look at what's in here then we receive our commendation from God.
God filters the sin and shame and puts it on Jesus. Why is my container full of clean clothes? Because he carried my shame to the cross. That's what we can expect. There is no video on that day, only a lamb standing as though he had been slain. It's all there is on that day. And we are clean in him. We're going to sing that song, uh, Our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Cast into the sea without bottom or shore, never dredged up, never washes up, never see it again. He sees us at our best, not our worst. Did I say that was the last thing? I've got one thing to read from you. Oh, can I recommend a book? Honestly, this is one of the sweetest books I've ever read in my life. It's by Dane Ortland, and it's called Gentle and Lowly. Let me give you a taste to finish. And while I'm reading this, the musicians want to come up, and we'll get ready to sing. And if you can listen as you're coming up, I know that's problems. Sorry, Ange. I'm going to make it difficult. Listen to what Dane Altman says about this. He says, perhaps looking at the evidence of your life, you do not know what to conclude, except that this mercy of God in Christ has passed you up. Maybe you have been deeply mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed by the one person you should have been able to trust, abandoned, taken advantage of, Perhaps you carry a pain that will never heal till you are dead. If my life is any evidence of the mercy of God in Christ, you might think, I'm not impressed. To you, I say, the evidence, oh, the evidence of Christ's mercy toward you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his mistreated misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned, eternally in your place. If God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on your way to heaven. Perhaps you have difficulty receiving the rich mercy of God in Christ, not because of what others have done to you, but because of what you've done to torpedo your life. Maybe through one big stupid decision or maybe through 10,000 little ones. You have squandered his mercy and you know it. To you, I say, do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's the whole point whether we have been sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes where divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating, 
and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, floodlight, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. And it means on that day, when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Isn't that good news? I just love it. It's a great book. Read the book. But it's a greater savior. No more shame. It is gone through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray we see ourselves in the light of this. And yet we see the look of Jesus of love. We hear the words of love and restoration that when we are aware of the deepest things within us that cause us to question us, we look to Christ and see He who bore our sin and our shame and who gives us rich mercy all our lives until that day when we stand before you and all we will receive is our commendation from you. I thank you we do not have to shrink at his coming for shame because he has paid for our shame on the cross and gives us nothing but mercy. Amen.